Welcome back to Case in Points. On our last episode, we featured our live event with Boys and Girls Clubs of America COO Lorraine Orr. It was a really interesting conversation where we spoke with Lorraine about her personal story, about how Boys and Girls Clubs of America uses data to drive programmatic and strategic changes, and about how the Boys and Girls Clubs movement will continue to scale their impact through partnerships, using technology, and investing in their people. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet, go check it out, it's fantastic. But on this episode today, we wanted to hear a little bit more from Lorraine. I love the way she thinks about systems and structures as the COO. So I wanted to dive deeper into two of the topics that we started to touch on in the last episode. The first is about best practices in managing a complex federated model. How does Lorraine and the Boys and Girls Club team manage and partner with 1,100 independent 501c3s who are running over 4,000 clubs across the U.S. and in various international outposts? And the second topic is around mergers and acquisitions. I mentioned last time that we don't talk enough about this in the social sector, and so I wanted to hear more from Lorraine about how their efforts to merge local affiliates is going and what the challenges have been. So perhaps we can learn some things that we can avoid as we think about mergers and acquisitions in the field. So with that, let's hear some more from Lorraine. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to hear more about your background and experience and the incredible work that you're doing with the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. So I'd love to start uh, talking a little bit more about the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. What an incredible, influential nonprofit organization that is uh, here in the United States. I'd love for you to start by telling us a little bit more about the structure of the Boys and Girls Clubs. Sure, uh, we are a 158-year-old organization, uh, you know, founded here in America. We are what I would call one of the true federated models in in the nonprofit space. What that means for us is that we operate at, uh, north of 1,100 independent 501c3 organizations. Those 1,100 organizations operate 4,400 clubhouses around the globe. Now, we are not an international organization per se, but through a partnership with the Department of Defense, we operate close to 500 Boys and Girls Clubs on U.S. military bases around the globe, 15 different countries. Uh, the other thing I would say that's unique about our, our structure is our work in Indian country. We are today the largest service provider of young people in uh, uh, Native American lands today in America. Uh, and that too was a, a partnership as a way to uh, what I would call meet the needs of so many underserved populations uh, across our country. So as you, if going back to the structure part, these 1,100 independent organizations, you know, all Boys and Girls Clubs of America has is what I call is the unlimited power of influence. You know, obviously there are standards and membership requirements in which all of our organizations have to comply to, but at the end of the day for us to move things through our system, it really boils down to, to influence and relationships with our local affiliates. 
Every one of those 1,100 organizations has a, a governing body that makes that controls the decision making, and that is usually a board of directors, a board of, uh, uh, of governors, which is a, a group of lay people from the community that are empowered to make decisions for that organization. So, again, we are a, a federated uh, model. Uh, and one that has served us, quite frankly, very well for over a hundred years. Uh, and, and it's a system that, frankly, we don't see changing. It's incredible to think about 1,100 independent organizations. Uh, and as the COO, you are you know, sitting at, at the national organization uh, helping with the entire movement of mm -hmm. the Boys and Girls Clubs. So within this really expansive affiliate model that you've just talked about, what role does the national organization play? Yeah. So, so I think a couple of things. One is is, is vision and direction. Um, we believe that it's really important for us if we're going to maximize the the size and scale of this organization that we have to be the ones that will set the the vision and the direction for the organization. Now, what I will say that's not done in, in isolation of the local affiliates, but we feel there is a responsibility to set the vision and direction. The other thing that I would say. Uh, in terms of Boys and Girls Clubs of America and our role is really around organizational development. Uh, you know, we, we employ a, a group of some north of 75, what we call directors of organizational development. And those men and women, their job is to partner with local organizations around uh, increasing organizational performance. Now, when I talk about performance, for us, uh, we look at it in a couple of ways. You know, yes, the business acumen, right, and the financial management, et cetera, that, that's a given. But the, the other part is really around performance as it relates to young people. And we, we group those in what we call our mission metrics. It's around the number of kids that, that come into our clubs every single day, how long they stay uh, you know, every day when they're there, and then also the, the tenure of their membership. Because what our studies tell us or what our data tells us is all of that makes a difference in terms of the outcomes that we want for, for, for young people. That's fantastic and really interesting to think about that dynamic of the national organization, as you said, setting that vision um, and the organizational development and, and quality, mm -hmm. uh, but, but really also knowing that with 1,100 um, independent organizations working in very different contexts all over the U.S. And, and in 15 countries around the world that those local organizations need to have a voice and a say, as, as you've talked about. Agreed. So, so tell me a little bit more about how you think about empowering the local leadership and ensuring that they have a voice and a seat at the decision-making table mm -hmm. for the entire movement. Right. So as I think about the, the local voice, I, I will say for the Boys and Girls Club movement, if that wasn't there, we would not have the level of success that we have today. So we think about that in a, a, a variety of different ways. One is is through committees. Uh, you know, we every region will have what we call a professional advisory committee. And then there's also a national president's advisory committee, which are made up of our local CEOs of varying types of organizations that come together to provide guidance to the leadership of Boys and Girls Clubs of America. There's also a, a group called the National Area Council Committee, which is a represent local board members that represent all five of our regions, and they come together four or five times a year for the same purpose, right, is to, to listen and to provide guidance to Boys and Girls Clubs of America. Now, what 
I would say about our decision-making process is, is this. We, we cannot uh, do that in a vacuum. So we spend a great deal of time communicating with the local field, and that may be through technology, but most of it is through face-to-face -face interactions. I'll give you an example. Last year, we, we moved through our system our most aggressive strategic plan in our 150-year history. And to do that, we literally held town hall meetings all over the country, well over 100 town hall meetings with thousands of board members and leaders that came together to give us feedback around the direction. And the, all of that feedback was then analyzed and sifted through what we call a national planning commission. That planning commission then put together a plan and put it forth in our system, and there's not one change that can take place without it going to vote. So every year at our national convention, we hold what we call our national council meeting. And, and inside of this national council meeting, this is something that's been true about our organization since our, the first 50 organizations created the National Boys and Girls Club movement. And that is one organization, one vote. So any change in our system goes to the floor and every organization gets an opportunity to vote on is this the right move for the Boys and Girls Club movement. It's incredible to think about the processes that you've put in place over the years. And so what I'm hearing is that it's about ensuring that the voices coming from the field, that you're hearing from all the affiliates and, and the leadership of, of those organizations and making sure that's bubbling up and, and coming down. So you know, sure. conversations going both ways. Uh, and then really a lot around feedback loops of getting that information, putting it through a strategic planning process, bringing it back for a vote. So having really investing the time and the resources into driving those conversations and um, and ensuring that you are having the, the feedback loops to close out those conversations as well. Great. Has there, uh, you know, has there ever been a time where um, there's been a tension between what you're hearing from the field and what you thought you should be doing from the national level, and, and how do you work to uh, how do you work to overcome that? Yeah, I wish I could tell you that there's never been tension, but uh, I, I would not be telling you the truth. Yes, I mean, even inside of this new strategic plan, there were things that were put into the system that have created what I would call vibrations. Uh, the biggest of which is this idea around mergers and consolidations. You know, as we talk about program quality, as we talk about this uh, idea of how we create consistency across a, a, an enterprise as large as ours, and, and you know, if you think about it, right, we have organizations in small town America, about 40% of our organizations that operate on budgets less than $500,000 a year. And then you get to the, the Milwaukee's, the Boston's, the Atlanta's that are, are very complex organizations operating on north of $20, 25000000 million a year. And then everything in the middle. So if you think about that, um, that variability, if you will, in size and complexity, it does create challenges for us. So inside of this this merger and consolidation conversation, I mean, people get caught up on, on consolidation mergers, losing their own uh, independence, if you will. What we look at it as as a way to increase quality, and that's what this is all about is quality. So, so as you think about this federated model, what that uh, strategy or initiative, it felt very different to our local clubs because before, you know, there was this this national organization that was created to to serve 
their needs. And we still do that, but we believe that we needed a shift inside of this space that we live today, where it's more around uh, guidance and leading versus serving and support, which are two different things, right? And, and those did feel really different for our clubs. So when those vibrations come up, you know, it's, this, it's very, very simple. We listen. Uh, you know, so right now what we've done as a national organization is we have uh, uh, recruited uh, ambassadors in every state. And, and, and me and the other senior leaders of, of Boys and Girls Clubs of America, and including our president and CEO, we are right now on, on uh, uh, these community roundtables and we are in every part of the country coming together, being open and vulnerable and very transparent around what this is and what it isn't so that we can start to ease some of the, um, some of it's fear, some of it fear rooted in, you know, nobody really likes change, right? Some of it is that, and some of it is just a misunderstanding because when you have, to your, your point earlier, these 1,100 independent organizations, you, you can only imagine when something starts at this part of the country, how it just kind of moves, and by the time it gets to Organization 500, it is, it is a different story. Uh, so for us, it's listening, being transparent, and being really, really honest about what we're trying to accomplish here. And, and for me, as the COO, I see that as my role at Boys and Girls Clubs of America, right? I have to be the voice of the local organization. So when the debates are happening internally, at, you know, my, my, I am their champion to say, if we do this, here's how it may feel, and frankly, here's how it may impact our ability to drive change in the uh, uh, in this federated model. It's really powerful to think of yourself as as the voice yeah. of, of that part of the community. Um, one of the one of the things that we often hear from organizations that maybe aren't doing affiliated affiliation models or federations, uh, but that have large footprints and are trying to balance the local ownership and adaptation versus the the national or kind of headquarters um, oversight is that they come to a, a point where they figure out what are the non-negotiables? What are the things from the headquarters level or the national level that have to be the same across all of the programs? And where can we be flexible for the local organizations to adapt to their particular context? Mm -hmm. Love to get your thoughts on that for the Boys and Girls Clubs movement. Are, are there things that are non-negotiables that, that always have to remain the same? Uh, and how does that differ from what can yeah. be adapted? So, so non-negotiables, uh, you know, there are a couple, but the biggest is safety. Uh, and child and club safety, we have put in our requirements that every organization absolutely has to meet. And, and to us, that is a zero tolerance. And, and, and that is the, you know, frankly, uh, one of the quickest ways for us to, to disaffiliate any local affiliate is if they uh, move away from, from those standards. And that is everything from obviously background checks for their employees, their volunteers, and board members. We just added that a couple years ago now talk about vibrations there were some vibrations around that but it was the right thing for us to do because we needed to set a stance every local organization has to report any critical incident to boys and girls clubs of america inside of uh, uh, of 24 
24 hours. And then obviously there are things around facilities and safety and transportation, insurances, all of those things that really make sure that our kids are safe when they come inside of our clubs. Now, when you, you think about it from a program standpoint, we have requirements around, you know, obviously hours of operation, months that they need to be open, the types of programs that they offer. Now, it does, now we don't prescribe that you, if it's an academic success program, that you have to, to do our Power Hour program, which is one of our homework help programs. We don't prescribe that, but we do say that as an organization, kind of our formula for impact, if you will, or our theory of change, it really is around academic success, good character and, and, and citizenship and, and, and you know, in creating this environment where, where young people adopt this healthy lifestyles, right, or this lifelong uh, um, commitment to, to live in healthy, and that's from what they put into their bodies to what they, they, they do with their bodies, right? And, and, and we've agreed on that formula for impact as an enterprise. Now, what happens inside of there programmatically, uh, local organizations have to do that to meet the needs of their communities because if you look at for us from the uh, you know, the depths of the Mississippi Delta and, and, and you know across Mississippi and Arkansas to you know the urban centers of uh, Los Angeles and New York City the needs of these children are very different not not to say that you know needs aren't the same in a lot of ways, but there, there are different dynamics in these communities. So what we wanted to do is provide a, a level of flexibility inside of our model that clubs can, can move in and meet the needs. Now, what I will say as an organization, um, you know, as you, you, you think about your, your question, um, we have had a lot of variability in, in execution. So inside of this new strategic plan that I referenced earlier, there's a, a lot of work Work being done in the space of consistency. A lot of that will be a consistent program model so that we're implementing programs and showing up for kids in, in, in the same way so there's a level of rigor around that. Um, we are, are training and uh, in creating training and leadership development programs for our, not only our boards but our CEOs, our frontline staff, all of those things are consistent because what we want to be able to do is change staff and management practice so that leads to what we call uh, this whole idea of high quality youth development. And when we do those and do those things right and consistent, we know that the outcomes that we have, are the outcomes that, that our children will realize by being a part of their Boys and Girls Club will be, uh, will be 10x. It's great to think about the, the the role of the national organization of, of almost said like you said the setting the program model but the it's almost the menu of of offerings of to say that you need to have things in these certain categories but within that you have the flexibility and we're going to help train your your staff and, and ensure the quality of those programs and it brings me back to what you mentioned earlier about the mergers and consolidations that you're undertaking of of wanting to ensure consistency across the organizations and, and quality across Tell me a little bit more about what you look for when you say, you know, here's a, a region or an area where we might want to think about merging or consolidating a, a several or, or some of the, the affiliates. 
what are the conditions that you look for? What, what's the signal that tells you this, this might be an area ripe for that? Yeah, so, so the first signal is density. Uh, we have a lot of boys and girls clubs that are, are inside the same market. You know, for example, uh, two years ago, three years ago, I left my, my, my role as COO at Boys and Girls Clubs of America and moved to Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles County, at that time, we had 27 separate 501c3 Boys and Girls Club organizations all the same brand operating in, in that one county. Now, obviously, L.A. is a, a unique unique place in terms of the, the distance between each one of these sites. But if even if you narrow that down just to East Los Angeles, four separate Boys and Girls Club organizations just in East Los Angeles alone, not to include what was in South L.A. and Watts, right? So, so, so density is really, really important for us because what we find is that in... Um, and in a lot of instances, we start to put ourselves out of business because, you know, because, you know, one organization, you know, usually is going to be one that's very strong and that is really driving, driving outcomes, et cetera, which means resources start to move away from other organizations. So density is one. The other is performance. Uh, and when I talk about performance, you know, we've looked at it in, in a few different ways, and that's mostly around business metrics, you know, because the, the the youth metrics, we believe we can train and prepare people to really change that. But when you have organizations that are uh, not financially sound and that, you know, they're, they're closing their books, you know, year over year in, in, in the red, um, where there is a lot of CEO turnover, you know, and what we look at is, you know, by year and how many, you know, CEOs have been in, in, in place. We look at the strength of the board. So some of those conditions will will create that. And the, the cool thing that's happening right now, frankly, is that local organizations are coming to us and saying, hey, we believe we can be stronger together. And, and now they're starting to have these conversations in, in markets all over the country. But what I will say uh, uh, about the, the merger strategy, and I, I referenced this earlier, this is really not about the outcome of merger and acquisition, right? It really is about program quality. And what we believe is when we can, can, can create some efficiencies inside of organizations. But let me be clear, the efficiencies don't come year one, right? I mean, because there's usually an organization that's undercapitalized. You have to look at salary equity, all of those things. But when we create efficiencies, it allows us to recruit better staff. It allows us to, to, to lean in more around the program quality space. It allows us to build stronger boards. And frankly, it also starts to change the uh, donor confidence, if you will, inside of our, our organization. Because generally, um, I would say probably eight times out of the t out of ten, there's a an organization that may have had some challenges in its past and a stronger organization. So that organization that has had challenges, it allows them to to move into a system that can accept them and then be able to elevate quality really, really quickly inside of that organization or that combined organization. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I love what you were saying about the time it takes for the mergers to to create efficiencies. I think that's something that we often underestimate in, in social impact and social entrepreneurship is that not all investments immediately give us returns that we have to invest in them over time and see the, the vision that we're trying to get to and, and make sure we give it the time to, to get there. Uh, so I feel like that's a really 
tactical piece of advice for other social impact leaders that are thinking about consolidations or, or mergers. Is there any other advice that you would give to, to other leaders? Yeah, so, so for us, a, a couple really painful ones. One is, is that we, we uh, needed to build a muscle for internally at Boys and Girls Clubs of America to lead and direct this type of work uh, before we started. Now, we had to hit pause and, and bring people in. We hired consultants that helped us build our craft, but it's not innate inside of, of, of some nonprofit leaders, right? You know, particularly as I look at my field staff, it was, it was, a, it was a heavy lift. Um, second, for, for us, as I, I think about what we've learned over the last few years, you know, one is uh, resources matter. Um, because when you're going through this process, you have to be able to provide financial resources and otherwise to really help organizations move through this. Because as you go through the diligence process, I mean, there are going to be things that you find. And the biggest for us that our board made an investment in, in our initiative was around salary, salary equity and, and benefit equity, right? Because usually there was a big disconnect there. And, and we really wanted these organizations to start from a level playing field and not really have to worry about how do I generate you know, another $200,000 or whatever the number is to really create equity across the, 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 the compensation model within the organization. The third thing I would say is that partnerships matter. And for us, it came in partnerships where we recruited uh, uh, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, for example, as a law firm on the West Coast. They literally provide north of $3 million a year in pro bono legal support that really partner with local clubs through the diligence process. And we just actually scaled that with a, a network of uh, law firms across the country to help us in, in doing that, which one, saves the local clubs money, but two, helps us identify any issues that we, we need to see, uh, that we need to know about going into these. The other I would say is that there, there is a, that, that you have to find this balance between risk taking and caution. And we tipped that scale a couple of times, which caused us to have to, to, to reset. I think the, the final thing that, that I, I would say as I, as I think about this is that, you know, well, two things, One, two, change is hard. And the, and the third is rumors are real. Um, because the, the, the people, particularly in mission-driven organizations, people get really, really connected to their community and, and what this brand means in that community. And, and, and when you start to hear these echoes, you have to stop and listen and figure out the root of that. Or you get down the line, months down the line, and then it implodes on you because there was somebody that had this really, really deep-rooted feeling about something. And it may have just, it may have been emotion, but it was really real. And, and, and you got to find the, the, the take the, the time to figure out what those are and seek solves to that, or it really could implode uh, uh, the situation going forward. Final question for you. Okay. As a social impact COO leading a, a large movement and organization, what advice do you have for other COOs in the social impact space? So, so for me, it, it, it really boils down to who I am as an individual um, and that I have to show up in a truly, truly authentic way. Um, I, I have my own value system that I operate 
under, and it starts with integrity. And for me, uh, I define that as personal honor. Uh, and there may be a lot of things that people can debate about Lorraine Orr, but that is not one, right? And, and you have to show up in a, in a consistent way. Uh, and that consistency for me is that, you know, since God, 30 years ago, I, I've always made decisions through one filter, and that's what's best for kids. And it doesn't matter what role I've played at Boys and Girls Clubs of America or how far removed you get from the mission, it, it's still the same, right? You know, you're still fighting for the same thing, and that is what's best for, for kids. Um, and I, I guess the, the other thing that I would say is, is um, talent. You know, and I work really, really hard to build uh, a team of leaders that, that, that represent the same thing. Uh, I tell people all the time that everybody that works inside of my organization, they are a direct reflection of me. So I, I, I take how we, we recruit, how we hire, how we onboard really, really seriously. And, and, and because they're the people that are, um, uh, that are the face, if you will, of Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And they're also the people that are there every day on, on, on the ground interacting with a local Boys and Girls Club. And they, they have to have the, the same uh, level of humility. They have to show a level uh, of respect for, for what our local clubs deal with every day. And, and the final thing I will say is that they also have to understand that Boys and Girls Clubs of America is not the most important thing to the local clubs. And, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's the, the environment that we operate in, right? Because they're called to do so much more, uh, to do so much more locally for kids and, and families in their community. And we shouldn't be seen as a distraction. We should be seen as a support and as a partner to, 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 to drive real change. And um, so, so, so for me, it's this, this, this level of vulnerability, this level of humility in, in living in this space that, you know, I, I exist, you know, in, in my role to make their jobs easier. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Lorraine, for sharing your, your insights and, and wisdom uh, and for all the incredible work that you and the rest of the team does for, for youth all over America and the world. Thank you very much. That was another great conversation with Lorraine Orr. So much good advice about managing complex federated networks and implementing mergers and acquisitions. And as always, I'd love to share some of the key takeaways that I heard throughout the conversation. For example, about managing a complex federated model, there were three things that really resonated. One, that Lorraine talked about clearly establishing the role and the unique value add of the national organization. A second around communicating the non-negotiables, for boys and girls clubs, that meant safety first and foremost, and adhering to their formula for impact. And third, really empowering local leadership in the work that boys and girls clubs movement does together. On the topic of mergers and acquisitions, there was also some great tactical advice from Lorraine talking about how, how much resources mattered, that they actually went and got a commitment from the Boys and Girls Clubs of America board to support salary and benefit equity when merging local organizations together. 
And maybe the most important piece of advice, just saying that change is hard. As they were going through mergers and acquisitions, that behavior change was so important and that sometimes rumors would pop up that they would need to address. And so being very careful to know what people are thinking and hearing and addressing it early, getting ahead of those rumors to make sure that everyone is truly on board with the merger. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us for another fascinating conversation next time. We'll be interviewing Darren Dodson, the founder of Illumin Capital, who talks about implicit bias and the role that plays in impact investing. And if you're enjoying these conversations, review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again, and we look forward to seeing you next time.